0: This is KDLL 91.9 FM, Kenai Soldatna. listener-supported public radio for the Central Kenai Peninsula. You're tuned into the Kenai Conversation. I'm Riley Bort. This week on the Kenai Conversation, we're sharing presentations from the Alaska Historical Society's recent annual conference, The 2023 conference was hosted at Kenai Peninsula College from October 5th to 8th and centered on the theme, Connections and Disconnections in Alaska History. On our program today, we've got two presentations about history and language in South Central Alaska. The first is from Garrett Verbeek, an Anchorage mountaineering enthusiast who traces the history of Alaska place names with public archival materials. The second is from linguist James Carey and geologist Jared Smith, who discussed their project of documenting Alaska Native place names. Stay tuned.
1: So my name is Garrett Verbeek. Uh, I'm here today to tell you about a project that I've been working on for seven years uh, called Choss Lore. And I think this is particularly relevant to this theme of connections and disconnections in Alaskan history, as we'll see this involves all sorts of connections. Uh, but before we get into it, I would like to just thank all of you for a very warm welcome. As you'll hear in a minute, I don't have a uh, background in history, I don't have a background in anthropology, nothing in social science. My background is engineering and recreational mountaineering, which has some advantages for this project, but in any case, um, it's an honor to even be given a seat at the table, and I'm really appreciative. Uh, I was delighted to learn recently that the Dinaina word for anthropologist uh, from Dr. Carey's topical Dinaina dictionary is Súk And that translates to one who examines old people. So (laughs) by that measure, at this point, I might have an honorary degree because this project has brought me into contact with all sorts of elders from all over the states. So the project is Choss Lore. The first question is, well, what is Choss, especially for people who aren't in recreational mountaineering? And for those who don't know, Choss is a term to describe this quality of rock that is brittle, and untrustworthy and treacherous. Uh, this is a photo of some friends and I on a, uh, a particularly chossy peak in the Chugach State Park called Beelzebub. And as you can see, it is steep, it is loose, everything is just waiting to come loose in your hand. In many cases, it's unprotectable, because even if you tie a rope to the rock, if the rock goes, well, you're lost. Um, Aaron Leggett from the Anchorage Museum had the very astute question of, okay, well, what's the difference between choss and scree, where scree is kind of a more recognized term, Uh, Choss is kind of more of a description for an actual mountain, and once it kind of comes loose and piles up, then it's scree. So here you can see a very Chossy, scree-filled landscape. Um, And that then begs the question, okay, what is is Choss lore? Um, So Choss, as you can tell, is not a very desirable characteristic in mountaineering, right? It's something that people do not want to be on compared to nice granite or trustworthy rock. Um, And kind of this carries over a little bit to, uh, to the idea of Choss lore, where there aren't many people, like, Chas characterizes the Kenai Mountains and the Chugach Mountains, and there aren't many people who are devoted to these places, but the ones who are, are fiercely devoted. Um, So, for me, the idea of Choss lore and mountaineering is very deeply intertwined. Uh, When I started doing this back in 2015, I had a mentor uh, who had a little bit more experience, or a lot more experience, in the outdoors than I did. And he would ask me if I'd been to certain places, and he would say, Hey, have you, have you been to Dragontail Ridge yet? Have you been to Peril Peak? Have you been to the Shroud? And these names captured me, right? They kind of allow you to think about a place in a way that you can't think about it if you don't know what the place is named. And they fascinate you, and they allow you to kind of have a sense of ownership and stewardship. Um, and they have a very like, a subtle but strong influence on the way that we perceive places. So for instance, we're on the shores of Cook Inlet, and I'd like you to take a very brief second to imagine how that might feel different for you if instead of Cook Inlet, it was Sandwich Sound, which was Captain Cook's preferred name, or even Zaliv Kuka in Russian, or Kungachik in Suxtum, or Takatnu in Denali. How would just those subtle name changes feel different? And I can tell you, for instance, like I dared to climb Mount Pleasant years before I dared climb Peril Peak. (laughs) (laughs) Um, These things have power. So this is a real website. And the idea is, what if we had a free public digital atlas online where you could scroll around a map of Alaska and you could see every single named creek. You can see peaks. You can see ski runs, glaciers, bays. And if you clicked on them, you could bring up a very short description. So in this case, we're looking at uh, Lowell Creek out towards um, kind of the Nelchina region. You get a very brief summary, but then you click to read more, and it brings you to a narrative history article of where these names came from. Um, This started as a dream for the Chugach State Park, because as I mentioned, I'm a recreational mountaineer, and it kind of expanded and expanded and expanded. You think, (laughs) okay, well, that's interesting. I should just write it down. I finally drawn my hard limits. This is for any single feature between the Susitna Rivers and the Copper Rivers, as they kind of arc together along the volcano. And there are 3,500 official place names in that area of interest, which includes the Canaan Peninsula and Prince William Sound. No one on earth knows how many unofficial names, right? There are ones in use by hunters, by the native communities, by pilots, by skiers, by mountaineers, by boaters. Every single community brings their names. And it turns out, collecting these names is a very fascinating way to teach Alaskan history comprehensively. These things touch everything, right? We've seen them touch biography. We've seen them touch ecology. We've seen them touch like global demographic shifts. And if you start examining this network of names in a given place, you really quickly learn the patterns of how people came in. And it's very democratic, right? The rich and poor are responsible for names. Men, women, every ethnicity, every income level, everything you can imagine. So my goal is to uh, to capture all of these. Slide, please. Where are we? I'm not the first person to dream this. Uh, Obviously, when I talk about this thing, one of the first things that will come to many of your minds is, oh, well, we've got Donald Orth, uh, who did an excellent amount of work. Um, We have folks like Mary J. Berry, who was not necessarily focused on toponyms, but she was such a freaking good scholar that she just unearthed those things as she went anyway. Um, And even before then, as it turns out, telling stories that are connected to place names is an extraordinarily Diné thing to do. And we are on Dinana territory. Uh, so in a lot of senses, folks like Peter Kalifornski and Shem Pete are very much spiritual grandfathers of this project, this telling stories about geographic place names. And as it happens, it also turns out that uh, carrying heavy packs through the wilderness is also a very Dene thing to do. And this idea of deeply knowing your back country is a very Diné thing to do. So I kind of feel like I've landed in the right place. Um, I'm horrible at kayaking and I'm not a very accurate thrower, so I'm grateful to be mostly on Dene territory rather than Alutic territory, because I'd be laughed out of the lunchroom in the, in the Aleutic world. So uh, today I'm here to tell you about two stories um, and how these place names came to be, and kind of walk through the research process. I'm here to tell you about the birds and the bees, or wait, scratch that, the, uh, the penguins and the grasshoppers. Close. <laughs> So to begin with, we'll be talking about a feature which is smack dab in the middle of this map, where we have a satellite photo of Turnagain Arm, Anchorage is up here, Kenai Peninsula, and then it goes into a hillshade just so we can kind of see the topography a little bit better. And for those of you who might know, this creek that runs back here is called Penguin Creek in English. Um, we have never been able to find a Dinaina name for it or a Sukhbiak name for it, but there's no doubt that those existed. And here is a really quick example of the importance of how toponyms kind of teach us things. We know that this area would be a landmark for both the Alutic culture and the Dinayinic culture. We know that because if we look at the Dinayinic names, we see stuff like which is where the Alutic emerged from, Portage Pass. And we know there was bidirectional traffic from a huge variety of sources. Going up the coast, we have which is where we killed the Alutic people. So there was obviously quite a bit of bicultural traffic in this area. And then if we look at, um, these are two massive, massive travel corridors historically, uh, which you might recognize as Indian Creek from the Arctic to Indian Ski Run, and then this goes up Bird Creek. And in Dinayana, they're called as Betnu, which is um, Sheep River or Sheep Creek, and Nuti-Eldufeni, which is that which flows to saltwater.
2: Goat Creek.
1: Goat Creek, thank you. Thank you, Jim. But Nuti-Eldufeni is that which flows to saltwater. And if we think for a second, all of these creeks flow to salt water. So the fact that this one was the one that the Dinaina looked at and said, that's the one, tells you a little bit about the importance of that travel corridor. And the fact that it's named Indian Creek in English, when everything was Indian territory, that they looked at that creek and said, that one is Indian Creek, tells you how important that was to these people. So. Um, Eventually, uh, the Americans came in, and as we know, that's kind of around 1894 was when Americans made the first commercial gold strike on turning an arm. Kind of in the 1898 time frame, we have the Glen Expedition, and in 1899 with the Lieutenant Heron Expedition, that's when this Penguin Creek was first described. And if we check orth, we get, oh, Penguin Creek was a local name reported in 1899 by Lieutenant Heron. But that's not the story. That's not where I can, who, what, why penguins? Out of all of these creeks, right, we have, by coincidence, we have this theme of Bird Creek, Penguin Creek, Crow Creek, Raven Creek, Eagle River. These were early, early English names. And if we fast forward, what that has spawned is an entire constellation of bird-themed names in use by the local backcountry mountaineering community. We have stuff like uh, along Penguin Ridge, which is this classic mountaineering route. We have Penguin Creek a daily Point, Chinstrap, Gentoo, Crested. We've got the corvids up here. We've got the kinglets, the wing, anatomical stuff. This is all spawns. this really fascinating pattern of names. Um, So understanding how Penguin got into the mix would be pretty fun. And let's see if we can track it down. Can we get a slide? And this, just to bring it back to mind, that this is a real place. These are photos of Penguin Ridge uh, by a mountaineer friend of mine named Andrew Holman. It's a beautiful route into Girdwood. Um, that, That mountain has a way of just, like catching the clouds. Um, it's really unique. Most most ridges and creeks off of Turnigan Arm flow perpendicularly straight off into the uplands. And Penguin Creek is the only one that kind of runs parallel to the coast. And it just has this way of capturing clouds that's really beautiful. Uh, get the next slide. So uh, as many of you are very familiar with, history involves looking at a huge variety of sources. And we're just gonna kind of keep track of these sources in this little cartouche over here as we go. on. And the first source In 2004, the Alaska DNR did something that was phenomenal. They ran around the entire state, and they scanned in all of the district reporter's books, which before basically Alaska had a government, this was where you reported mining claims and marriages and everything. But the mining claims were interesting, especially for toponym research, because oftentimes prospectors were the first people into a given area, and they had a huge incentive to keep very good records. Because if you strike it rich and you can't prove that that's your claim, you're host... The problem with this is these are hundreds and hundreds of pages of just scans. They're not indexed. They're not, uh, you know, there's no way to really know what kind of content. There's no way to search for the content. Um, At least I have an index now. If you'd like that, please come talk to me. But we start just kind of reading these things, and this is how these stories come together. So as you're reading, you know, uh, Sunrise Mining District Book 2, page 88, we come across a claim. And if you'll recall, Penguin Creek is a tributary of Bird Creek. And here, on May 5th, 1896, William McIntyre makes a claim, and he describes it as situated on the right-hand branch of Bird Creek. And you think, okay, that's interesting, it's probably Penguin Creek, I'll write that down. Next slide. Months later, completely different book. Now we're off in Turnigan Mining District, book 64, page 128. May 6th, the very next day, a guy named Frederick Richardson comes through, and all of a sudden he's on Penguin Creek, the same being the Lower East Branch of Bird Creek. And you think, ah, something happened there. I don't know what, but May 5th to May 6th, something happens. Um, and then kind of, uh, we don't need to go back, but the district recorder on the first claim was a guy named Sam Mills, Sanford Mills, who some of you might recognize, he was a very well-respected recorder. He knew what was going on. And if there had been a name that he was aware of for that creek, he would have filled it in. So the fact that he didn't fill it in and now it's here the next day tells us something. Uh, next slide, please. So if we look around the same pages, we kind of come up with this this series of claims that's recorded on May 6, 1896 by the same party. And this party involves Frederick Richardson, uh, William Gleason, Martin (coughs) Chester, Auckland White, Mumbine, and Bizarre, who some of you might also recognize as a well-known name around here. Um, These names all become jumping-off points for research. right? You can then go search Chronicling America, Happy Trust, like all of the sources. they become options. And in this case, um, Martin Chester actually turned out to be a pretty significant person. Um, but we're still trying to track that down. So, okay, we have some idea of when Penguin Creek might have emerged, but we still don't know what the heck, what was with penguins. So, next slide. So, we keep on going and keep on trawling through information. Mm-hmm. And we've gone from district reporters' books, now we're off in the Anchorage Library reading travelogues from 1903. Um, this was uh, Summer and Fall in Western Alaska by a guy named Colonel Claude Kane at the very end of it, he's waiting for a ship out in Soldovia, and as a little aside, he says, hey, there are a lot of mirrors here, uh, which are known locally as penguins. And you think to yourself, okay, well, could that be it? Maybe? So Anchorage Public Library, this is not a digitized book. It's not available anywhere else except in print at a library. So thanks to the library for that. So he said, okay, we'll take that information, and we'll go to our expert friends. I don't know much about birds, but I have a lot of friends who do, and people who are enthusiastic about anything usually love to share their knowledge. So you start bouncing ideas off of people. And they say, okay, could it have been mirrors out in that area? And they say, well, no, you know, mirrors are diving birds. They go for uh, clear water. Turning an arm is really too salty. Um, And they say, no, that doesn't really quite fit there. And someone says, well, maybe it could be mirrorlets. And you say, okay, well, we'll put a pin in that for now. So next slide. But then years later, years later, reading through Chronicling America, which is a fantastic resource. I can come across this newspaper article. And it says, a vessel will leave this port for Cook Inlet on May 1st, 1896. The schooner Penguin, which has just been built, is gonna sail under command of Captain Chester, it's gonna land passengers any place they wish in Cook Inlet, and then move on. And if we can move forward, just to summarize the timeline. We've got May 1st is when this new ship, the Penguin, under command of Captain Chester, is going to leave for Cook Inlet. On May 5th, 1896, four days later, there is still no recorded name for this creek. And then the next day, a party which also involves Martin T. Chester names this creek Penguin Creek. And this research does occasionally involve leaps of faith. I would hang my reputation that this is the anatomy of a penguin. This is where the name Penguin Creek became associated with that creek. And who would have thought that we could find this down to, like, literally, probably the exact day uh, that, it was, that it was done? Uh, so this is kind of, now imagine doing this for every single place, name, uh, all 10,000 <laughs> So now we're going to bounce north a little bit, and we're going to look at an area that's kind of on the north side of Anchorage. Uh, you may recognize Palmer. Um, we're going off towards Lake George, and side notes. Lake George has frustrated me for years. If anybody knows who George is, please <laughs> tell me. It appears on an 1898 map, just off in the little corner. This is Lake George. No explanation given. Um, then, McLutna the Lake, Metal Creek, uh, Knick Arm, and Skip um, So question. How many of you guys know of a feature named for grasshoppers in this general area? Who has ever heard of the grasshoppers back here? Nobody. And how many, people have you, how many people associate grasshoppers with Alaska?
2: <laughs>
1: Not many people. But if we're looking through topographic maps, just looking and looking and looking, eventually we find this thing, we're gonna do something fancy again. Please, one more time. Aha! Um, and just back here on a topographic map from the 60s, there's just this little thing that says, hey, this is, this is grasshopper battle. And the history of Knick River is much, much more fuzzy. Um, basically, uh, 1896 was the height of the Cook and Gold Rush. That was when prospectors were pushing off into, uh, up the Kinnick River, up the Souset now. Um, it was also the year of the, uh, the first known English-speaking hunting expedition up the Kinnick River. The Kinnick River was, of course, used by the Danana uh, Athabaskans for millennia, but I, it is unlikely that grasshopper is connected to them. Uh, 1898, there's that frustrating map that I mentioned where it just says, hey, this is Lake George, so there must have been kind of some knowledge of that area. Uh, 1903 is the earliest known claim that I've been able to find on Metal Creek. And 57 years later, the federal's uh, basically there was a federal record of Grasshopper Valley. And once again we turn to Orth, and Orth says, ah, oh, this was a local name reported in 1960 by the USGS. Good luck. Um, <laughs> which, I have a huge admiration for Donald Orth. Um, As someone someone held up his dictionary, Uh, it is 1,087 pages long, if I remember right, so that's about the limit of what you can bind. He only had a sentence per feature. And on top of that, it wasn't his job to track these things down, although I'm sure uh, he had extensive notes. Um, But we're gonna make it our job to track these darn things down. And if Penguin Creek was the story of bringing together all these different text um, sources, from mining claims to books to that type of thing, Penguin Creek is one that just kind of, like, fell into my lap all of a sudden. And in this case, hey, we're looking at newspapers.com, which is now a paid newspapers archive. And all of a sudden, in 1935, in the Nome daily nugget of all places, uh, there's something that says grasshoppers are tough in Alaska. And it tells these stories of Mr. (coughs) and Mrs. W. Peterson of Nashua, New Hampshire, and their guide, Lee Waddell, flew out there for a day, thinking they were going to hunt. They got swarmed by grasshoppers that ate all of their gear... (laughs) <laughs> and they flew out the next day. So if Penguin Creek was talking about the gold rush, now we're spiraling off into all these different subjects of, you know, 1935, a chartered hunting flights. I think 1927 was the first aircraft in Alaska in Fairbanks? Is that 1913 right? 1913 was the first. 1913, okay, fair enough. Okay, then it's not quite as fast as I thought. But people were on this recreational aviation stuff surprisingly fast. But this is where, if we can go forward one. Uh, so then we start saying, okay, well... We also have now these names, these Lee Waddell is a guy, and then the Petersons or other people. And first we find Lee Waddell in uh, the Anchorage Museum. Uh, so we have this passport photo in the Lou listing collection. But this is where it gets interesting because the coolest thing about history is this ties into real life. These are still real people. Their grandkids are running around. You can contact them. So we look around, and we look on Facebook. We look for Lee Waddell on Facebook. And here in our historical Homer Alaska Facebook group, which some of you may be members of, we have our very own uh, Enid Pruhl, Poole, or Pools They say, oh, well, my uncle Lee Waddell was buried there in the early 50s, talking about the uh, the graveyard. So we can talk to these people, and we can get their memories. And Clark Fair is also in the audience, and he says, oh, hey, well, this, uh, the, I suppose, sister-in-law of Lee Waddell was his babysitter in the early 1960s. So you can go talk to these people, you can send them an email and they will respond. We had the Petersons, and you think, okay, if someone could afford a chartered hunting flight in 1935, that's the type of family that still keeps their records around. So you do a little digging, and you find out, okay, well, it turns out they were the parents of a governor of New Hampshire. Their grandson is still alive. You send them an email, and they write back, oh, we got your message. We've got the journals from the trip. We've got the 16-millimeter film reels from that trip that is in Alaska in 1935, the founding year of the Matanuska colony, a really early year for Anchorage. And you have to say, okay, imagine how much of this stuff, imagine how much of Alaska's history was primarily documented by tourists, who then took it off into all these little corners of the US. And it's tucked away in some little archive. It's tucked away on 35-millimeter slides in someone's closets. if we don't try to kind of claw it back, it's gonna be lost really, really quick. But that is, uh, especially given this article identifies it as an unnamed valley at the time, somewhere in here, a nameless valley, I would submit that that is the origin of Grasshopper Valley. And we legitimately have now the diaries and the 16 millimeter film that has only been seen by like two or three people that we can just put up online and anyone can look at this thing. Uh, So this kind of brings it full circle, Uh, a lot of the times, It's talking to the right people, and that's one of the reasons why I'm coming to you, because my challenge is figuring out who the heck to talk to. These stories are often in the memories of like, oh, you gotta go talk to, you know, Susan who lives at the end of the road, and she's the homesteader's granddaughter, and you have to talk to her and not her sister because her sister is shy. Those type of things are how you track down these stories. Um, And right now, as I'm sure you're aware, uh, we're losing people who remember the 40s, 50s, and 60s at a crazy rate. And that is a lot of where uh, the English-speaking geographic names come in. So one last slide. So, okay, um, it turns out grasshoppers are indigenous to Alaska, which I had no idea of. Um, And it's most likely uh, this Melanopolis sanguinipes, uh, the migratory grasshopper, the devastating grasshopper. And their description is literally, oh, this is one of the most damaging grasshopper species in North America. So this spirals off. Now we've got to go talk to entomologists of like, okay, was this specific to 1935? Is it geographically specific? How does this work? It spirals off into linguistics. Uh, some of you might recognize that sanguinipes is sanguine, which is related to blood in Latin. How the heck did that get associated with this species? So this is just, for me, and for I think many of the brains that are in this room, This is addictive. Like, this is basically every single day, go learn about X. Go learn about caribou. Go learn about folklore connected to birds. Go learn about the Cold War. Go learn about, you know, British military expeditions in the 1800s. You can get sucked in, and I want you guys to get sucked in. Um, So, last slide. Uh, The goal, this is a live website. It is up and running right now. It is at www.chossler.com. The two aspects of this are, uh, this atlas is the kind of the heritage of all Alaskans. My intent is to never put behind a paywall. It will always be free. However, I want to start bringing in guest authors. Right? Uh, for one, I do not have the time to write 10,000 articles. I'll be dead long before them. But two, a lot of these stories aren't mine to tell. Um, like, I can write something for Mount Marathon, uh, but it won't be the same as someone who is in a multi-generational family down in Seward, who is deeply attached to the mountain, writing it. I want folks like Catherine McNamara to talk about Fornsky. I want Joel Isaac for Kasiloff. I want folks like Stephen Haycox and Tom Kazai, Julie O'Malley, the people who care and are good communicators and have deep roots, so that this can be a showcase of love for Alaska. In the background, though, we've seen how many sources I trawl through, uh, and I've been actually really surprised and honored that several of the presentations over the last couple of days have referenced material which I believe this project first turned up and sent to them. I need to organize this stuff, Um, so as you guys, uh, if anyone attended Russ Vanderluck's presentation the other day, he was mentioning, oh, Dick Pierce passed away, his stuff is essentially gone, we don't know where his notes are anymore, and you can build up so much knowledge, and if it doesn't get passed on, then it doesn't really do any good. So in the background, because I come from an engineering thing, um, I have put together a database called Karen, because Karen is organized trust, right, stacked on top of each other, um, and this is a way to organize reference material and to cross-reference it with people, with geographic features, with date information, and with themes. So you can start doing stuff like say, hey, show me every single mention of this person across all these different books, or show me any instance of these two people interacting, or show me any photo of the Mataneuska Glacier organized chronologically. And I'm trying to turn this into a 501c3 uh, over the course of the next year. The two ways to do that are to either get three directors, so hint-hints to all of you guys, or to work under the umbrella of an existing 501C3. Hint, hint, to the Alaska Historical Society. (laughs) I would love to put this under you guys as a project. Um, I do think there's a real path towards generating tens of thousands of dollars for expanding the Atlas and for funding digitization and preservation of all of these collections, which, you know, if we have film that's in Juneau or a logbook that's in the National Archives in Maryland or stuff in Denver, stuff in Seattle, it's functionally inaccessible because plane tickets are really friggin' expensive and we don't have free time. Um, so if we can digitize this stuff, it protects it against fires and floods and that type of thing, and it also just makes it more accessible for all of the researchers, all of you. Uh, so that's my spiel. I'm going to be working on this for the rest of my life. Um, <laughs> but uh, I would really, really, really love to have more involvement. This is at a critical mass to really build into something uh, for Alaska. So thank you for listening.
0: If you're just joining us, This is the Kenai Conversation, where we're hearing presentations from the Alaska Historical Society's 2023 conference. This next talk is with James Carey and Jared Smith, the scholars behind the Carey-Smith Atlas of Alaska Dené place names. Stay with us.
2: All right, so for our final panel, we've got James Carey, who's a professor of linguistics emeritus at the Alaska Native Language Center at UAF. Uh, And we also have uh, Jared Smith, PhD, who is currently an assistant professor at the University of Alaska Fairbanks, sorry, (laughs) University of Alaska Anchorage in anthropology uh, and geography department. He has 15 years of experience working across Alaska as an archaeologist and has worked closely uh, with Dr. Carey to map traditional place names in the state since 2012. Take it away. The uh, future of this is somewhat ambiguous. It's not affiliated with any university department. It has not been grant funded. You, if you, uh, this is the best URL. If you have it by invitation, and it's open, and Esri seems to be looking the other way, because it is the largest database of contiguous indigenous names, like for twelve place names in the same language family, apparently anywhere in the world, and and um, it it's. uh, um, I'm not exactly sure what the best uh, optimum uh, a, a pattern or a future would be, but some of the like a 501c status might be something. Let's go to the next slide. Um, that's uh, the first picture of me in May of 72, when uh, I, my ex-wife and I were here for uh, about two and a half weeks in Kenai, and that changed my life, really. And then and that's uh, an early picture with Shem Pete in about 1978, where I had about uh, 12 quads taped together and I had these mile art labels on there. And he's talking about it at the bilingual conference in Anchorage. And um, let's go to the next slide. Now, let's do some uh, little background. Now, we have official names such as. Um, uh, say Chinilna Creek off or Talkeetna River, for example, and and that's an, a a a, a Denina origin name. We can tell because the Danina say Talkeetna but the Atna say Eatdakuteena, and cute is food is stored, and it means the same. And it's a bilingual regular vowel shift, so that's the accurate name, and. Um, so then we have um or even this one, it's nice, Tanzona River is is from Heron and in its to not in little uh, which is actually for little tunnel zoom. And this is the sound they use for calling muscratch smooch. And uh is an onomatopoetic verb and um and then we get into the fact that, that I in upper Cuscoquim and it, it is E uh, in Denein and Ot, and, Ot, and We have uh, disconnections between the practical writing systems in the, in the different languages. When we do networks of names juxtaposed, that's no problem. They're regular, and you start to learn each language, your, your favorite language. So the, these now, like Net Yeser Ridge, is the official name uh, actually since twenty thirteen for, for at the University of or no 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 twenty eleven for Net Yeser Ridge. That's the ridge at at it's essentially at the um, the nexus of glacial lake Otna, which we can only jump to briefly here. Troth Yidda is. The official name of what had been unnamed, but something like College Hill, for example, is is, um, is um, a, a folk, a local, colloquial name. So, and then you have a, a derogatory name, which is actually Sachin not that was changed in uh, 2014. So let's go to the next one. Um, this is the only statute in the state. And it happened in 1982, and it was unanimous in the Senate and in House uh, that for unnamed features, we should give preference to uh, established indigenous place names in a writing system that's being used by the Alaska Native Language Center. People don't know about this, uh, and, um, but that's the only statute and now um, let's go next. Uh, so there's so many issues here, and, and um, that there are spin-offs for this. But but I've developed my own methods for trying to keep cumulative space, place names lists, and I've used everything from sketch maps to speakers to finding old sources of of sketch maps by native speakers to uh, transcribing audio tapes. Of, 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 uh, of what I call travel routes or travel arrays. Arrays can be sort of discontinuous naming of places. And then I, the cornerstone of my work is combining place names lists with band label dictionary files, and it becomes rather powerful. And you, you don't need to bother putting all the place names in a dictionary. You just put them in there when they're kind of flashy and colorful. But the Dene place names are analyzable and etymologizable more than 99% of the time. Um, so and it, there, there, there's a great way to, to, to appreciate this uh, as your own self-learning goes. Or, um, uh, and there's all kinds, even more all the time, of, of derivative products that we can look at. And I'm especially big on signage in in place names, the tourism, educational tourism, landscape tourism, uh, we we really have great potential, and I think uh, this is where Jared's gonna come in. This is unrehearsed, of course.
3: Yeah. So this um, this is how the the initial the we uh, web page opened up. We had uh, ori- originally in 2017. Um, I used to. Before that, I lived in Fairbanks, and so when um, Jim and I would meet to uh, begin digitizing and mapping all of his extensive place name lists, um, it was really relatively easy to do. After 2017, I moved down to Anchorage for a couple years um, uh, to take work down there and so we could no longer get together on a regular basis. So um, I ended up putting everything up on ArcGIS online so that we could begin to um, collaborate. at any time we wanted and we could both be uh, looking at the uh, place names at the same time editing them as well. Thing is about ArcGIS Online is um, it has to either be free and open source um, and you're just paying for it on a, a, a personal user um, license or if you're going to uh, close it off to other people as probably many of you know keep it to an organization or something you have to start paying exorbitant fees uh, for that. So. Um, Anyways, we uh, we I've been able to set it up so that it's not really searchable unless you're already um, an ArcGIS expert or uh, you know dangerous at least in getting there. So if you have an ArcGIS online account, you can find these maps, but uh, your average person who uh, doesn't really understand how ArcGIS online <coughs> works uh, can't. And this this is the protections we have for a lot of these. Um, sites that are more uh, sacred or describing village sites that um, people who are you know, less scrupulous uh, aren't gonna go out and uh, desecrate or dig. Uh, so anyways, Kraus and everyone, um, his colleagues published that um, uh, wonderful map uh, through ANLA um, that shows traditional um, uh, territories in Alaska and adjacent Canada. Um, once we began mapping uh, these uh, uh, extensive place name lists, uh, with uh, which I did with um, with Jim, and uh, I realized that we had we were actually getting very detailed information of the borderlands um, mm-hmm. between all of these languages and uh, bands. And uh, so I ended up incorporating a lot of the place names I could find for Yupik, Zupia, Inuit, uh, so that I could also tighten up the borderlands around um, the edges of the Dené language area. And uh, so you can now see when we compare um, Krauss and his team's um, uh, place territory map, traditional territory map, with what is informed by um, our place names, which... um, we have 25,000 place names now um, uh, informing those traditional place names. Um, we get to some really interesting differences, especially when it comes to how we map Des-Hitans. Um, The Canadian languages especially, that one is looking uh, quite wildly different from what was previously mapped. We're still working on this area quite a lot. Um, so got a pile of uh, work ahead of me. Uh, we'll switch to the next one. So that's what... Uh, i 'm hoping to uh, publish this map with Jim um, once we really feel like our borders um, are real and firm and not really changing but again we're you know this is the area that I 'm kind of focused on it now, so hopefully we 'll have a product that we can get out soon so a couple of things about the um, the, the place names um, that I thought maybe would be interesting for the historical society was how uh, the native Dene place names were influencing the initial uh, English place names. Um, we have uh, statistically the same amount of Dene place names in Alaska as we have in English uh, official English place names um, in Alaska, just a little bit less on the Dene side. But um, we have, when we, um, uh, I think it's like just a matter of a couple hundred uh, differences at this point, about twelve to thirteen thousand. So, what's interesting is that in the Dene area, we have approximately 12,000 Dene place names, approximately 13,000 English place names. There's only about 1,100 of those place names that actually are describing the same named feature between English and Dene. So, um, both languages are actually really focused on naming different landscape features and focused on different landscape features. Um, so, we have uh, As, you know, Alaska continues to uh, develop official uh, place names of the state, we have a whole corpus of traditional place names that have been here for thousands of years that can be used um, and can really, you know, highlight the uh, initial cultures before um, my own that were here. But we are able to see that um, there's two ways that native place names influence English ones. Um, That's uh, through uh, the borrowing of meanings or the borrowing of the sound of the name and uh, those of you that have, you know, tried your best to learn a native Dené language, it can be quite hard if you're coming from English uh, learning the different letters and pronunciations of those because they don't exist in English and you're using quite a different part of your mouth to pronounce those. So, um, same problem with the initial uh, white colonists uh, and uh, what they ended up doing was when they needed tended to need that place name in English they borrowed the meaning from the Dené people. So um, a lot of these are uh, places like they'll come across in English like Caribou Creek, Stone Creek, Bird, you know, uh, Eagle Mountain, things like that, um, which was very interesting um, when I compared how uh, the Dené languages were sharing place names across uh, between each other um, and the Dené. The other um, unrelated language families around their periphery were sharing place names. Um, they also um, There was hardly any divergence. Um, it was also either a borrowing of the meaning or a borrowing of the sound of the name. But the statistics were opposite. So um, it's uh, generally the um, two languages were really trying hard to um, preserve each other's language, uh, sound of the name, rather than the meaning, which was kind of cool when the meaning was used, um, it was preserved. So it's kind of a meaning theme. Uh, so if you have like a bear creek, you'll see um, the, those themes around. And uh, so that actually has given us a, a really, um, a much more uh, stronger idea of how languages have, traditional languages have expanded and contracted throughout history before colonialism here in the state, which is pretty cool. So um, give Jim, I'll answer more questions about that, but. Uh, I'll hand it over to Jim at this point.
2: So, um, uh, this is my 2019 uh, AJA abstract in um, uh, The Resilience of dene Generative Geography, considering the net, yes, uh, ensemble, raise your hand if you've read it. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, this requires reading. I can't summarize it now, but I am claiming that the names around the uh, uh, surrounding the north margin of Glacial Lake Otten have been in place in the certainly in the 11th millennium. I've proven it that, that and this is true toponymic resilience. Those names are 12 and 11,000 years old and newer. But the names in in Tanninol River Valley precede those. And this is the only claim of its kind in the world, that some place names can be 10-plus millennia and fully analyzable and etymologizable. And it has implications for theories of language change. And the other term I use for this is a slow chronology. So you can look this up here. Let's go ahead. Uh, I want to say that the glacial lake Otna names that I've used in that paper all were all in the 1983 Otna place names list with the same spellings and the same translations and etymologies. Uh, this is around uh, the, the the head of the Tyone River. There's a really neat uh, place called uh, Sostigi right here. Oh. Ben <laughs> is the name for... Um, Tyone village, yeah, Sostigi, oops, yeah, Sostigi here is that means sun bump. And all of these place names that are in the paper are, they speak for themselves, they state the argument for themselves. Let's go to the next map. This is uh, what the Atna place names looks like when the Ninana River meets the Susitna River. And I've used ascending numbers here for um, the, uh, the drainage, and then and then and then I started the upper Susa. So I come downriver to upriver, and then upriver to downriver, and you can see these tremendous clusters of sets of names. This is what the DNA generative geography capacity is, so that this top end is odd, ah, not nah, top Venus. Bennett that's a Moraine, that's the Westport. they are clusters of names that are easy to memorize, and when you have a world-class uh, traveler such as Jake Tanzi, uh, go to the next slide, uh, Jared could make these travel routes for Jake Tanzi that are completely... You know, this is so world-class, I mean, you you can talk about these mountaineers and how they can cover their areas and they... they, You should try walking some of Jake's areas sometimes, I mean, but but Jake just knew this geography in real time and he, he can pepper it with other sorts of... Modify them with riverine directions, so in 48 minutes and in 10 seconds, he's covering 1145 miles. Uh, Carrie 2010 has a lot on this. That's the Atna Travel Narratives, if you're taking notes on references, which I hope you are. Let's go ahead. So this is from our web map and one of those SNP features, you know, where you can make a slide out of it. And and this is... Um, uh, let's see. This is uh, uh Okay, well, I... Yet not here's Sostigia's here. Here's the head of the Tayon River. I'm especially interested in this island lake or island mountain, and, and that's a mountain on the south side of um, of Taion River. And here's the mouth in, of, um, and of and then this Kaysai Kaysai uh, is, is the one that really. Uh, when I learned this name in nineteen eighty one it happens to be the same name as Hogan Hill and this guy Jack Tyone at his little place in Palmer it was like January of eighty one. I drew the, he drew this little map and said eight side for this hill that's north of the mouth of the Tyone River and it's the same as the name as Hogan Hill. So that's a back mark and a foremark by orienteering principles. Let's go to the next one. I, um, it, since there's some unnamed features, I'm, I've been toying with the idea of proposing nine new official place names that would showcase glacial Lake Otna. And I, I just uh, was fooling with this the other day, but like uh, about four or five names over here. But this big island is extremely intriguing to me. And, um, and it, this is uh, Mount Sanford, and then Boulder Creek is this, this stream off Mount Sanford. And, and um, I'm not sure what Big Island would look like 12,000 years ago, but it's a name. And Tanzai is a uniquely denying a word for island. And Tanzai de Galea as Island Mountain, wouldn't be said that way in the Tanana Valley, so there's connections with that. And the name for Tanada Lake is moving water in this stream that's really uh, the original, uh, pl- uh, the, the big spillway in in about uh, uh, 10,800 years ago, Tanachi, moving water, is related to the name of Tanada Creek. The old site that, that the Wrangles have found, Lee Reininghaus' article in 2019 is about this 12,000 year old South site that's at the high water margins, upper margins of glacial Lake O has continuous occupation. So let's go to the next slide. So we'll talk about Denina, which I, I came up with a 10 region numbering system because of the complicated geography here. but one, two, three, four, five, uh, 6, 7, eight, nine, and Kenai Peninsula 10. Uh, and it helps me to um, uh, organize the names uh, and, and allow for, um, I've got a new feature, turn to the next slide. The, these are uh, sequence numbers. And how can I tell the newest names in the database? I can do the auto number a descending auto number and in, in, in see things I've done maybe in the last two years. But it's quite gratifying to find ways we can improve the names, even if you say that the language territories are abandoned. There's no speakers who know this. But with generative geography principles going on, you can name mouths for any stream, whether you, you have it in here or not. But we've had some real interesting... Uh, discussions or, or, and, uh, or, or things that are uh, new discoveries. I've been thinking, when I drove that oil well road by, in Ninilchik for the first time, I, I, I was thinking of how I would rearrange the Denyiner names in inland from from Ninilchik. Let's um, go to the next slide. So in, in recognition of the wonderful film last night, I found these slides in in that rebuilding Brown Carlson's cabin, and this is from the 2010 book uh, edited by uh, uh, Karen Ivanoff. But this is the best example of toponymic ty- typography using USGS water and landform uh, conventions. You know, in, um, in in that book, and there's tremendous potential. For this kind of cartography, for uh, learning the names, like you know, this is called contrashy Buna. It's kind of Laischi Buna. Thank you, and and um, and we can get them right. And in the area of Brown Carlson's cabin and stuff is up around here. Is anybody here from the group last night, the, the film group, and well, John Hanson, and. and um, uh, let's see where was his cabin, John? Just keep going up the line there right right there, about, right there, not in that little niche there. Non, where uh, moss is uh, where, where moss exists. So um, there's really a lot of potential for um, various kinds of toponymic products and we need some kind of teaching of this it's not just for letting someone in the GIS get the map or or someone else uh, you know you get this transmission of of names as 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 they're spelled and you get all these typos and stuff and people don't really know how uh, hard it is to build to maintain cumulative place name lists but it's a good challenge for yourself and um, we have many products now that could be done. Let's see what I have next. I forget. Oh yes. Um, so I have this article of Catherine Arnt and I published, and it's really cool for the um, uh, uh, Kenai Peninsula. In in one one date here is as early as as um, 1829 that there was a coal fire here below Deep Creek in Denilchuk in 1829. And this is c- collected by Rosnasensky in a couple of weeks in August in 1842 and was published in, uh, in Groundwink uh, uh, later in, in 1849. Yeah, we could um, take some discussion here. And uh, yeah, why don't we pause for discussion?
0: So what's
1: the, what's Igig between central Yupik and Sukstun, what's, what's that kind of darker purple represent?
3: This one? Yeah. Um, that represents uh, Igig dialect of Yupik, um, uh, what's uh, her name, um, who just did her dissertation down there, on, uh, Yoko, that's, uh, most of those names uh, came from Yoko and from the older Bristol Bay uh, place named
2: Death So, this is actually um, larger than the uh, uh, perimeters of the Alaska native for for the Dené language, and um, and and it's time transgressive, so we're talking approximately 1880 when we we can say that we, we kind of know which names were in place, and um, Essentially, the, um, in, in 1880, without it, this area, the perimeter, this is now larger than this. But, but the, uh, the one on, on one of Jared's maps is, is uh, 9% larger than the state of Texas. I thought some of you might enjoy that. And, 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 and actually, in, if you go back 6,000 years to the northern archaic, and the reason that they have na- names that are on and Sound, you could say that the Dene occupation had no other alien non Dene languages there six or eight thousand years ago at the time of Eskimo arrival, and, and was larger uh, than nine uh, percent. Yeah, larger.
3: building on that. Um a lot of people, um, or non-native people, writing about native place names everywhere. Um, I did. This formed an essential part of my dissertation, so I did a pretty extensive literature review on that. They'll use words like timeless. Uh, to describe the nature of uh, native place names that, you know, when you hear uh, things like Book New or something like that, you're like, oh, it's just a timeless name. Who knows how long it's been here? Um, I was able to build a model that really actually um, robustly compares the place names to ecological events, um, that long-term ecological events that we can see change through Alaska, and also archaeological traditions. And... um, we can look at any millennium and see the expansion of uh, these Dene languages or contraction in the face of the uh, Inuit languages uh, coming in across there um, and uh, so it looks like a lot of these languages up here in the Kuskokwim and the lower Yukon have been there at least 6,000 years, um, robustly at least 4,000 years um, Many of them, we, we see proto atna names appearing over here, uh, meaning they had to come from Atna country, meaning the country had to be established there uh, at least by 6,000 years. And uh, since um, Jim's dictionaries and the archaeological record of the Copper River Valley do not show any other archaeological tradition or language present, in uh, Atna country, the Copper River Valley, and we do have place names that strongly correlate around um, Glacial Lake Atna, which disappeared about 10,700 years ago. We can robustly say that we have Dene place names in the southern Alaska range uh, range for at least 11,000 years, Um, and uh, that means the earlier forms of this language, which are documented uh, in the Tanana Valley, have been there since the Terminal Pleistocene. And we have, uh, you know, our favorite one uh, is on Donnelly Dome and uh, on Fort Greeley, which is um, and that means hard amongst the glaciers.
2: Um. This is in Jared's (laughs) dissertation as a kernel density map where a dot is separated by represents 30 meters. So you see the areas where we have the highest densities of Diné names in caution habit for Koryakon uh, there, there should be 30 or 40 percent more names that aren't on our map, for sure. So it's somewhat misleading and incomplete, but um, I'm using this in the lower town of name Dictionary, which the University of Alaska, uh, uh, they don't assure me, but they better, we're going to get it published soon. And. Um, and, and this is figure 25, M25, the Lower Tannerot Dictionary. And part of this shows the issue of the absence of substrate. There are no non uh place names in indigenous networks here, of, in, 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 with very few exceptions. And then we have the hydronymic districts, which I wrote about in 1996. So my terminology for a theory I call the Proto-Denaelex Loci has been developing for 25 or more years. And and all the terms I've originally proposed, such as reverse hydronyms and hydronymic districts, is really cool. But a reverse hydronym like Teclanica and Chattanika, when the dominant hydronym is not and so it's an avenue among streets and in western alaska uh, in or in alaska there are only 38 or 39 reverse hydronyms but the fact that the middle fork of the koyakuk is a reverse hydronym in the brooks range west Weststone, it's the only reverse hydronym in the the Alaska Range, well, why did they put the haul road through there? Let me follow my discussions (laughs) and my my argument here. So the second reverse hydronym that stands out to me as most interesting amongst the 38 is High Power Creek, which is at the first stream on the left at the head of the Kuskokwine River. So that they're, when the dunes are expanding, we can see the direction of their expanding, and it's so brilliant that means Black Rock Stream. Even at the foot of it, there's a, a there's a tat, tat ash knot in in Upper Cuskerquim. So I call that a double reverse hydrogen. But but they make these simple names, which means Black Rock, perhaps referring to coal or something. But at the same time, they're st- saying this is a new drainage and we're, we're expanding into this drainage. This is fantastic. We're almost 15 minutes over time, so I want to make sure we have...
0: And that's all for this episode of the Kenai Conversation. Thank you to the Alaska Historical Society you can hear the Keen Eye conversation every week on Wednesday at 10 a.m. and Saturday at 5 p.m. here on KDLL, or you can find it on our website, KDLL.org. I'm Riley Board. Thanks for tuning in.